Hey there, boys and girls. I forgot the date. It is July 24th, 2000. I almost said 14. 2016. Welcome to the episode of the Sitting Instagram Podcast. Special California so welcome Rodeo to the edition. Salinas Rodeo. Wait, what? How's this? Like, Man. like we didn't go. <laughs> we didn't go. Down. We no. didn't go to the fe- the carnival. No, no. We didn't go to any of the parades, and uh, it ended today. But I'm sure it was a great time. Oh hell yeah! I'm we, sure, dude. It, it was fucking fancy. This it so seems so fancy. We this kept year. ourselves busy with the traffic, <laughs> dude. Well, yeah, again, we we. I went to Fresno. That like just sucks the life out of you. <laughs> That just ruined your whole weekend. You yeah. just like you, you went to Fresno, you came back, and you're just like, "Well, I'm still tired. Like you haven't slept enough even now, huh?" <laughs> no, it was, no, uh, just the the heat, yeah, and the exactly. smell. And it's just like, ugh. wait, what's up with the smell? The Central Valley funk just sticking around, <laughs> you know. I'm still, uh huh. Some of dude, some of that was, and I mean, don't get me. I'm from Salinas. I'm no well, that fucking big joke. Yeah, in the winter. It stinks like shit over here too when they're fertilizing the fields. Of course, but nah, man, this was like fresh shit right in your nostrils. <laughs> like, like, are you shitting on the fucking highway? Like, what, what, what is it? Middle of summer, the sewage is backed up. I don't know, bro. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I mean, they're growing shit, right? Like, they're they're, they're like well, they it, grow it, it smells like they're growing shit. No, that's how bad it fucking smells, dude. Um, right, right. But uh, I, I, and I felt terrible because, to be completely honest, and I'm not even making a joke. I just happened to notice it, but the it it wasn't Fresno either. It didn't really smell in Fresno, just the regular Fresno funk, you know. But the Central Valley, it started stinking in Los Baños. And I was like, dude, why? Why? And I was like, I know it's not named that because it smells like shit always, you know, like some sulfur thing or something. There's got to be another reason, which actually I think it's a creek. Oh, yeah. Dude, there's a fucking creek that goes through Los Baños right through the downtown just a if creek. It, it's not like a whole a whole river. It's a canal. River it's not even shit. a creek. I don't know uh, if it's natural. It's uh, all fucking square. Uh, uh, but it was just pretty cool. There's a park, uh, you know, with with water there. And I saw people fishing, like in the in the shit water. No, <laughs> in the that canal that goes to L.A. Well, fuckers drink all our water. Um, the I don't know. whatever it's called, the, the big canal, the aqueduct. Yeah, yeah, the California aqueduct. That there thing. you go. They were, people were fishing on that thing. Is there fish in there? Well, apparently. Am I stupid? To, like, I, I mean, it connects to the ocean. It has to connect to the right. ocean somehow, right? Like, it's an aqueduct, and that means we save water there. So, like, if snow fucking well, melts they, onto there. they trap there. water in Shasta. Shasta Lake is where it all starts, isn't uh-huh. it? And there's fish there. Yeah, I, I felt I want to assume. But that's what I was. I I, I, this is where I was like, I don't know shit about nature. I would die so fast if I got lost. Like, um, but it was like, because it seems so sterile to me, you know, like this concrete, uh, like aqueduct mm-hmm. that has num- numbers, you know, so you could tell how deep it is and all mm-hmm. this stuff. So it's just like it seems, and people drink the fucking water. Mm-hmm. So it's like, dude. Why would there be fish in there? You know, it shouldn't it be clean drinking water? I mean, to me, it's like in the ocean, it can get overfished, and this is inland. It's it's obviously been overfished. Like, there's still fish. <laughs> well, that's why I was like, I want. I actually, Someone I want to explain the science, dude. I wanted to stop. I, I was, <laughs> I felt weird because I know it just. Do you want to go wrestle? This? Have you ever seen those videos where they like wrestle a catfish? They like stick the thumbs in the water and they just feel around and they're like, oh, I got one, I got one, and they like. Bust no. that shit up. Well, that's what I that that was. Your that's, well, that's what suit. I thought they would. They were fishing <laughs> out there. 
Catfish? I honestly wanted to stop and tell the people, what the fuck are you fishing for? Mm-hmm. Like, are you just doing this just for fun? Just because, like, I don't know. It's just I could drink beer and throw shit in water, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm a dude. I get it. That could, that could be fun. For four okay. hours, I'll, I'll do that shit. But then I was like, I bet you catfish. Some motherfuckers don't die. You know, like, there's a little puddle, uh-huh. and there's be a catfish right there just <laughs> surviving. I don't know. They're fucking tough-ass fucking animals. They eat dirt, man. Yeah. And, um, so I thought, okay, maybe there's catfish there. But then it's just like, this is drinking water. I'm sure they, they must clean it again. I don't know. It trips me out. They get filtered before it, like, goes into the pipes, I imagine. Well, because, like, if there's a reservoir, if it's a drinking water reservoir, you can't go. Like, there's no, humans can't go in there. Like, some of them will allow you to fish. But if it's a reservoir that's drinking water, um, like there's all kinds over here in in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. y- you can't like swim in it and all that. Well, yeah, at that point it's like. But I don't get. But but, but we can have fucking. Sense. We can. Okay, so there'll be what? Say fifteen thousand pounds of people at max capacity, and that's bad. But we can have like fifty thousand pounds of fish in there, and it's all cool, and they're they're shitting and fucking and doing all that stuff. <laughs> like I don't get it. No, that's not cool. Or maybe I don't know. It was just well, weird. When, when, I don't know. Man. Why is the, is there fish in the point. aqueduct? Um, California Department of Fish and Game, get back to us, right? Please, channel <laughs> some tweet. Give, give us the underground news on how that all works out. Is there fish there? Are people just doing it for fun? I would do it for fun. I don't care if I get to drink yeah. beer, smoke weed. Fuck it. I'm gonna throw it. I don't care. Even catch a fucking tadpole, I'd be happy. <laughs> um, Which is harder to do than you can imagine. Not good. Tadpoles, not with a net. <laughs> I remember being at Dennis Domenis Park back in the day. That was so fun catching tadpoles. Dude, I remember doing it with bottles. Fuck up tadpoles. Poor tadpoles. Not at a Costa Plaza, but on the other side of the street, just dip a bottle of water where like the roots are growing and you're good. (laughs) We killed all kinds of tadpoles. (laughs) Frogs don't die. Frogs just tadpoles do. Well, they're baby frogs. Exactly. Fucking poor fuckers. But anyway, this um, this is a. You know, Speaking of the heat, digressing. Ah. Yeah, again, Fresno. It was a, Chuck Chancey was a beautiful park. The fucking the rest of it stinks. I'm sorry, Chowchilla, Madera, Los Baños, Los Baños. Boo. It all stinks. Um, but I'm sure you're great people. I'm sure you're awesome. Love life and all that. Whatever. It smells like fish sometimes in Monterey, Salinas, dude. We. It's so fucking. It. it I'm not gonna say it's perfect, but. Okay, there's a big ass fire going on right now in Big Sur, whatever. That way, <laughs> the smoke was coming from over there. That's uh, from but anyway, that, um, that way. Anyways, yeah, yeah. So, th- anyways, but that doesn't. There's there's never any concern of a fire in Salinas. No, like, not the at fuck all. We're gonna start a fucking lettuce field or some <laughs> shit. You know, like it's all fresh and still moist. Yeah, yeah. No we, we grow water plants. Like <laughs> it's yeah, nothing. Yeah. Nothing's gonna burn. And then. Earthquakes, the San Andreas Fault is kind of close, but it's over there by Hollister, you know? It's on the other side. There's a fucking mountain range in between us. Mm-hmm. Like, that mountain range will absorb hell of energy from earthquakes. Mm. 1989, okay, some of our 100-year-old buildings fell, but the fucking 100-year-old buildings in Salinas. Imagine what the fuck this shit they built them with back then. If they can't figure the town out now, 100 <laughs> years ago, dude, I can only imagine the motherfuckers that were trying yeah. to build shit. So it made, so yeah, but we really didn't, like, there's no big earthquakes here, you know. Mm. There's no big faults that are that are scary. Uh, tsunami. We're fucking 15 miles inland. Mm-hmm. Got to be a ginormous ass tsunami. And if it is, like, oh, waterfront property, baby. I can Yeah, I eat can your heart out, Monterey. Like, knee deep, but again, I didn't study. It wouldn't be fucking tsunami. bad. Yeah, no, no. no. And it's just gonna be moist for a while. 
<laughs> rain. Let the summer heat, not even summer. What are, I mean, this is technically summer, but it's not our hottest season of the year. Dude. <laughs> yeah, and, and, like make everything dry in a bit. And we yeah. average 13 tsunamis, inches of rain a year. Uh-huh. 13 inches of rain. There's fucking... That's a tsunami right there? <laughs> no, there's, there's desert. No, there's deserts that get 13 inches of rain. You know, it's like it rains, but it's, it's not... Too, it's like 270 days of sun a year, you know? So it's 100 cloudy days, and most of them are fog. It's cloudy the rest of the day. It's fucking... I don't know. We live in... It's, it's a fucking dope-ass little place. We're so protected from everything. Everything's this, there. This is every, what, every religion's promised land. I keep saying that. This is like whatever you want, dude. Yeah, you're not gonna is, burn on a fucking fire. Earthquakes, yeah, they happen around us. We kind of feel them. And it's like, ah, eh, whatever. Ride the wave. It's just like the earth shook, shook for a bit. Where are the tornadoes at? Not here. <laughs> There's been some in Watsonville, even. You know? Really? Oh, I don't know. Shit. I saw that once. So it snowed here like twice in the past thirty years. So. And it was just heavy hail. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So so uh, again. It's crazy how we take this area for granted. Yeah. Just driving through the Central Valley was like, again, the people probably were awesome. I'm sure people are just cool people, you know. But it's like, fuck, dude, we live in such a literally a cool area. It's fucking seventy degrees, mm-hmm. and it, we're chilling. I, I had family come up from um, Calexico, Mexicali area. They're like wearing their scarves because it's too cold. <laughs> that sucks. Again, if I lived there, I'd live in Mexicali. 100%. Hell. At least, like, if it's hot, but there's shit to do. You know? Calexico is, oh, my God. Those, Calexico, El Centro, Blythe, the all those are, they, those little towns scare the I shit mean, out of me. I mean, you can live there they and scare then me. come party, come party, go party to Mexicali and then just stay there. Nah, I'd rather live there. And then, like, end up in Calexico whenever you wanted, you know? No, those towns scare me. Those towns really They're scare. not that small. El Centro, eh. Calexico is like, like 10,000 people. It's fucking a neighborhood on the east side. Well, yeah, but because everyone is in Mexicali. Okay, I see where yeah. you're going <laughs> No, honestly, dude, those towns scare Mexicali the shit out of me. Like a cop's going to get drunk, east side. the shit out of me or something. Like, no, I don't know. Uh, those just seem like well, such backward hick towns, you know, and I, I don't and mean And they to be... had like a bunch of um, like corruption come, come out in the past year. Imagine, yeah, Calexico, nepotism I mean. and shit is bad here. Imagine over there. Mm-hmm. Like, the same people have been running the town forever. It's a town called fucking Plaster City or something. Like, what the fuck? That's not real. No, that's scary. Like, nope, I'll be a Mexicali with my people. <laughs> and the tacos. Oh, the tacos. I want, I want flour tortilla tacos so bad. Um, but anyway, it, and it still it stinks in Mexicali as well. No, see, <laughs> Salinas, man. We got uh, it good here. The promised land. No, but that was Tuesday and Wednesday. Salinas is Wednesday, Latin for the promised land. I'm just saying that. Wednesday was 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 pretty fucking badass. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, I, I I went to college. Not good. Yeah, we got to go out to Stanford. Um, I I believe we'd mentioned it on the show before. If not, on our Facebook. If mm. if not, to you in person because I was fucking excited. Um, but yeah, we we were invited out there by Nacho Ornelas, who is a historian. And a doctoral candidate at UC Santa Cruz, and he's doing uh, his thesis on the Bracero legacy um, in the United States. And again, for those not familiar, Bracero was, was a program where Mexican workers were brought into the United States to help, mainly during World War II, but I think it went into the 60s, the program did. And... And yeah, so that that contributed a lot to the immigration of Mexicans into the United States. 
And so Nacho is doing his research at Stanford University, which happens to have one of the big, you know, Mexican-American collections. What did they say? It was Stanford, UC Santa Barbara, and Berkeley are like the three big schools right, yeah. that, that really have big um, Mexican-American archives and collections. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so Nacho is doing his research there at Stanford and his mentor is Dr. Robert Trujillo. Who, who plays from Metallica? Go ahead. On the weekends. <laughs> yeah, I'll never it's so easy. The first time I heard the name, I've I've never forgot that name. Yeah. Um but Robert Trujillo actually well let me look him up. I, I probably should have done this beforehand, but I just because it's he's got crazy titles. Assistant University Librarian. I called That's him a librarian. Right. I called him a librarian, like a like you check out books or what? And he did not like that. No, not at all. He did not like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, but but he 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 was he was cool about everything. He was oh, nice. hell yeah. He was really well. I don't know if humble is the right word, but he was. Fuck really no! Cool. Tell it in your face. I don't like that he was censoring himself, dude. Right? <laughs> all right. You we were talking. The, he was like, "Fuck you, this." Listen fuck to that the shit. interview we had. <laughs> super cool, super professional. I get it, and I'm sorry for calling you out, Doctor Robert Trujillo, but. Outside the interview, it's like, whoa, are we talking to the same guy, bro? What the fuck? And I was trying to fucking hold back so much. I was trying to behave. I was really trying to behave, and I did. But why? There was no point. That guy was so cool, you know? I don't care. We were at college. Yeah. It's all adults there. They They know how to act. I don't know about Trujillo. They were fucking the professor. The other professor. Yes, they do. They were all nutty professors. Oh, how about that? There he is. So he, Dr. Robert Trujillo, is the assistant university librarian and director of special collections and the Francis and Charles Field curator of special collections. So all the old shit in this library, this dude was the one that, like, facilitates it. Right. right, and, right. Um, so, yeah, and he was, you know, we were invited to, to the campus and, and we got to talk to him for an hour in a fucking library. Dude, we were in this room. This room had, what did they say? Like 40,000 books or some shit. This fucking, just this one room had 40,000 books. And it was the, the, it was all like first. the medical collection. Oh, yeah. 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 It, it was all the, the science and, and medicine. So, dude, there was, for, again, first editions of Charles Darwin's books. First, there was fucking Galile- books written by Galileo. Um, we saw they were setting up for like an old book course right after well we were done with the room and they had put out um a copy of the divine comedy mm-hmm. from 1497 which is still i like that it said it was fire. first edition but it was written in like 1300 so it's like no that one didn't say first edition oh really yeah the charles oh. darwin uh pl- domesticated plants and animals was the first edition from 1868 Shit's burned into my memory. I can't believe I was there. <laughs> These fucking dude, how first of all, how do they last? Fucking nerd. No wait, what's how your did... ringtone? Nerd. nerd. <laughs> but dude, yeah. I don't know. Five hundred years. Five hundred this was before before Europeans landed in the United States. Before the motherfucker that came here who the continent is named after. That dude uh Americo Vespucci or whatever, he didn't show up till like fifteen oh nine. This book was already written by... He probably read it on his way over here with a fucking candle and shit. Like, damn, man, I can't wait for all these Indians. And then Fireproof they, paper? Anyways. Yeah, it was lamps. It was magic. It's still, like, it's not even... It's not even faded. You know? Like, how? How does it last 500 years? 
with the Nazis and shit. Speaking of Nazis, I read The Monuments Men. I wanted to get into that, dude, because when uh-huh. he was saying, like, our whole deal is, like, preserving this Mexican-American history before it gets lost or thrown away because people think it's not history. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you like the fucking Monuments Men for Mexicans. Like, it's yeah. crazy. Except there's no war going on. Hey, Except the war on education. It's a cultural war. Yeah, there you go. That's the one I'm looking hey, for. Hey, you build a fucking wall, there's a war, bro. Go fuck. <laughs> <laughs> fuck your wall. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of technical, and yeah, fuck your technical. Whatever. I read the treaty. Cold War, right? And then they literally build a war. See, a wall. Ain't so, no yeah, Cold I, War. I totally believe it. Yeah. This is fucking Mexican American heritage. You know what's so stupid about that wall? Um, the fucking Sonoran Desert is a way better wall than some goddamn 10-foot-tall thing. Yeah, <laughs> Fucking things like 300 miles of the most inhospitable fucking land. And people say, you know what? Fuck it. I'm across that bitch. You fucking really think those people are coming to, to like rob a bank or some shit? <laughs> you know? You yeah. fucking think they come over here to fucking beat up an old lady? Like, are you fucking kidding? I was in Fresno for a so, day, and I'm still bitching about it a week <laughs> later. It was 90 degrees. And these fucking, these fucking people crossed 300 miles of desert in fucking sandals, because you know how we Mexicans do it. That's not a stereotype. It's our shit. Damn um, straight. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. Build your fucking wall, bro. What the fuck? Tunnel under. We're already tunnel undering your fucking stupid walls. Badass tunnels we could drive cars through. Chapel yeah. tunnels, dude. Fucking yeah, signature go. on them and shit. Doesn't that one have like a motorcycle or some kind of rail track? I don't know. That's cool. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Mexicans will be the best boat builders ever if you build a fucking wall. Fucking Mexicans are the best engineers, bro. Just let us have it, man. Yeah, Cubans <laughs> fucking floated here on tires, dude. Watch go. what we'll do. We'll do some fancy ass shit. Yeah. Dude, those fucking boats will have cable. That's all I'm saying. They'll have fucking cable, cable. TV. Yeah. <laughs> Telling you, a fucking genius. We all gotta watch our Univision. Hell yeah! <laughs> Again, I'm not the biggest George Lopez fan. Speaking of him up there, but I love his bit of like Mexicans will sell you a blanket that's still warm. You know, <laughs> like yeah. we just hustle. That's just our shit. We're jungle people. The jungle wants to kill you. The jungle is not people friendly, and we're like, you know what? <laughs> the fucking Aztecs, like this whole tribe that all Mexican culture is based around or whatever they built islands in the middle of a fucking volcanic lake like that's the stupidest they were just like nobody wants to be here we should live here <laughs> like that's the fucking we, people we that's our mentality our capital yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that's our mentality you think a stupid wall is gonna stop anything god you're dumb we'll bring your people to us we'll make Americans come to Mexico tourist traps bro hell yeah Anyway, yeah. that's frustrating. But no, anyway, well, if you want to hear intelligence talk about Mexicans, uh, this this interview is perfect. This interview is perfect. He, he was a really good. What I what I like about was speaking to scholars is they really there's very little emotion to it. Sometimes, again, some English professors at certain colleges are very emotional. But um, what I liked about this guy is um, you ask him certain questions. He's like, "Well, this is what I know." scholarly you know this is what the the books and and everything that i've read this is what it says i don't care that you know if i'm a 49er fan i'm not going to say they're the best team ever you know i'm going to be as objective as possible Mm -hmm. and according to what i've read this is this is what i've seen you know 
And that's what I liked about it because I was all like emotional. I was expecting him to be like, La Raza, we shall overcome. And like, yeah. But he was just like, read a book, fool. And I was like, damn. <laughs> read damn. several. Damn. Um, Listen to well, it. And, and yeah, and again, and that's also, I, I, again, we're our typical rambling, but he does mention a lot of very good books and a lot of very good authors in that. You know, he's like, you know, this guy in this in this book or this guy in this speech says this. So it's it's good, you know, listen to this episode several times, especially skip the first 20 minutes. <laughs> but listen to Dr. Robert Trujillo, listen to Nacho Ornelas. They, these guys, again, we're not like a Mexican-American fucking pride show and we're not no. like all La Raza or whatever. Really, we're about Salinas. No, but, but ultimately, we're... All Mexicans that are involved in, in this, you know, and so it's really cool. Chicanos, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a technical term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mexican Americans yeah, love education. <laughs> so they go to night school and take Spanish and get a B. Um, I took French. Not good. No, but anyway, it was cool that there's somebody out there. You know, there's people. There's a group out there preserving the the story of of how we got here you know how we became what we are yeah again you can there's museums and and colleges and everything dictated to to the italian immigration to irish immigration to chinese immigration to so many other you know groups of immigrants and we're still out of phase we're like oh pobrecitos they took us out of our country you know and it's like fuck no we should be damn proud of of, of what our Ancestors? Is, is it ancestors if it was like your grandpa? Is that still your ancestor? Yeah. Okay. Your parents are ancestors, you know? It's just that one generation old. Away. Sorry, Mom. You're not that old, but you're my ancestor. <laughs> but anyway, you know what? It's cool that somebody is telling that story. You know, it's not... And especially, it's 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 even more important nowadays where a fucking a liter, one of the two presidential candidates has come out and said Mexicans are rapists. You know? and, and yes, he didn't say all of them. But in his exact words, somebody's doing the raping. <laughs> Fuck. You know, so, um, so it's very important that at this point we, we you know, we have somebody that, that's collecting, again, these stories. And so eventually we can get to the point where it's just like, yeah, we're Americans. We've been here. Shit, it sucks. It's weird because I, I don't know. I didn't explain it. I couldn't get it right to him. But it's like we've been here longer because ultimately, you know, like. The border kind of crossed our culture, and I'm not mm-hmm. gonna get like ah oh, take our land. I don't give a fuck. What what happened happened. Politics, dude. Mm-hmm. Fuck borders in general. Um, but yeah, but it's I mean, just the French and German were friends once, right? And now they are again. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, yeah, but it's cool, you know, to have these stories. Be like, this, this yeah. is what happened, and and we are Americans for all intents and purposes. We are Americans. Our ancestors came here, most of them willingly, and. They came here with pride and purpose, and and yeah, and, and again, the, well, again, I'll just play the interview because they're way smarter. We just sat there for an hour, yeah, and I feel like I'm a fucking smart ass. I took a bunch of stupid ass pictures in front of their tower, and yeah, in front of their sniper tower. <laughs> oh my god, that's so scary! Oh, oh my god, guy. I got a new appreciation for snipers. <laughs> I guess that's kind of the. Or a new fear, I guess. Dude, go. well, you've heard of the, in Texas that guy that went up into the tower. Well, and there's a tower at Berkeley as well. Um, Welcome to the show, Stephanie. <laughs> yeah, can you go up to the, in that tower at Berkeley? Yeah, you can go up there and like, yeah, anyone can pretty much go up there. You can. I've, I've, Do you have to pay? 
Like it said, you, it was closed, so I assumed you have to pay, and they just sold out for the day because there was too many people. Oh, okay, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, you do have to pay unless you're a student. Uh, if you're a student, you get in free. So what if you're a student of life? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta so pay. Like, you really can't treat seven bucks or something. I don't know. Yeah, um, Stanford as a tourist spot, huh? That's cool. Dude, I, a lot of people. I was there as a tourist. A yeah, lot of the people here. I think were there. But I was just like expecting everyone to ask me for ID, and they didn't. So I don't know. I didn't care. But no, like, I, are, you, are you a member of this country? And I'm like, I'm American. <laughs> I well, no, because again, I heard about, I've read that story about that dude in Texas, you know. And it's just like, how was he up there for an hour? And why did people keep getting shot? And walking around campus, I was like, oh fuck, that's scary. You can't tell anything from yeah, up there. You can't see who's up there at all. Um, and if he's on the other side shooting, it's so big that you can't hear. We didn't know there was people in there until we got, we were like right in front oh, of yeah, it. Oh, yeah, right we're right right like, under Oh, look, it. there's kids. Yeah, and they were fucking like playing Pokemon up there. <laughs> it was so fucking... I knew appreciation for that. Yeah. That was scary. So, I mean, I knew I didn't go to college for a reason. I obviously, <laughs> I, was sm- I was obviously smart no, enough. I'm not going to do yeah. that. I was obviously smart enough and I had the willpower, but it was just, there was something that was like, nah, don't do it, you know? That's, saw that sniper tower. I was like, all right. Mm, good, good choice. <laughs> Fucking up. <laughs> uh, but anyway, here's our interview with uh, Nacho Ornelas and um, Dr. Robert Trujillo from Stanford. Nacho just researches there. He's actually a banana slug. Could <laughs> uh, you want to play one thing before it starts? I'm curious. All right, I like, dude. I could listen to that Homer thing over and over again. Um, but yeah, anyway, here's our interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Please, huh? I'm bad with that. I can't lip read. What am I deaf? Oh my god, what's that? Hey there, boys and girls. It is July twentieth, two thousand sixteen. Welcome to another episode of the Sardines on the Ground podcast. So. Wait, you want me to go, man? Yeah, I, this is, it's. I don't even know how to start. It's such an impressive building. Yeah. We're we're here at we're recording at Stanford next to hundreds of year old books. So it's it's a, the newest. I've never been had a start up a podcast in this way. But anyway, we have two very special guests. See, now this yeah, is one of these very exactly. special guests. Good job. <laughs> um, Call me out. Yeah, we got, uh, Dr. Robert Trujillo and um, Nacho Ornelas here from from Stanford. And you know, Can you all say hi and mention what, what your actual title or job here is? <laughs> I wouldn't even know how to start. Well, I'm Roberto Trujillo and I'm the Assistant University Librarian and Director of Special Collections for the Stanford Libraries. My name is Ignacio. Uh, You can call me Nacho, obviously, Ornelas. And uh, I work here uh, in the Department of Special Collections and University Archives. I work with Roberto as his uh, assistant and also doing uh, a lot of research here. A lot of the research for my uh, uh, dissertation. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at UC Santa Cruz, actually. Uh, But uh, a lot of the research that I do um, for that dissertation takes place here. And so I, uh, I, but I also work here. Yeah, and so we're we're yeah we're gonna get into a lot today. I've been, yeah, there's a lot. Well, what I want to start off first with this, this super silly question, because um, again, you're an assistant librarian, and I know people think, oh, he sits at a desk and checks out books. What what does an assistant librarian do at a library of this size? Well, it's actually assistant university librarian, which is quite different from an assistant librarian. Oh. And what I do here primarily is 
is manage and direct the acquisition of what we call primary source materials for research and teaching. So we have a, an acquisitions program for, for rare books, most of which are antiquarian, but we also collect the contemporary artist book, which is books basically made by hand, and then quite separate and distinct from that acquisitions program is a program to collect manuscript and archival materials, which are basically the papers of famous people or important organizations, uh, basically globally. So the collections that we have within the book program are something like 300,000 volumes of rare books, and we have probably something on the order of 70,000 linear feet of manuscript materials. And mostly these collections support teaching and research, particular to Stanford, but available to scholars from anywhere in the world. Most of the people are writing books or working on their dissertations. But we do welcome students who are working on a 10-page paper, if they're freshmen, or we welcome students who are working on their master's thesis, or anybody who's working on any kind of a paper. But it's basically materials that are necessary for doing original research that eventually becomes a dissertation, a thesis, a paper, a book. And with so, much, so many books and materials, so say you're a freshman doing a 10-page essay, how do, you, how do you narrow it down to what, what book or, like, because there's so many, I don't know, it would seem so, uh, again, you come in here and say, hey, I, I need to do something on astronomy. You know, how do, does the, the, the student already have books in mind, or can you come here and just say? Probably not, but if a person were to come in here looking to do work on astronomy, we do have a particular strength in the history of science. And so we have a lot of manuscript materials from, from prominent scientists, or we have a lot of rare books that deal with science going way back to Newton and Galileo. And so depending on what the student is interested in or needs or how much time he or she has, what kind of paper they're doing, there's a lot of different options for them to take. If they have no clue what they're trying to do, they would talk to a librarian, either myself or other people in the, in the building, in the organization. And Stanford has something close to 100 librarians in the organization wow. overall. So there's probably somebody who can be very helpful to them you know, with a phone call or an email note. Uh, That's, and what's the oldest book in here? <laughs> I have to ask that. I have yeah. to ask that. I don't even know if you know yeah, that off you, the top. You, would, you would have to think about what is a book. Yeah. And so we do have cuneiforms, which are basically text on a stone, a tablet. What? And is that a book? I would argue probably so. Would others argue that? It's more I of a pamphlet. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you have works that deal with the, you know, the letter form, the word, the text, the book, the codex, uh, a broadside, uh, a letter. And so do we discriminate and not collect certain kinds of things? Here, probably less so than other places might. Uh, we don't like to think of ourselves as collecting uh, with restrictions. If it's important to teaching and research and it's particular to a Stanford academic program, we consider it fair game to go after and collect. 
And so a lot of what we do is is defined and shaped by by students and by their work and by faculty and their work and by the interaction of faculty and students and their work. And so the collecting program is always a moving target and librarians don't necessarily know what to collect until they understand the academic program that they're collecting for. And because students come and go, you know, every year, yeah. that's always a moving target and it's always shaped and defined by what people are interested in what they're doing. So it's it's exciting because of that. So you really can't get old here. You can't yeah. you can't not keep learning because each generation of students is gonna have a different take on a particular topic or subject or or whatever their interest is. So it's it's really quite dynamic. And I mentioned earlier that we had you know, something like 300,000 books in special collections. If you ask what the number is for the general library as a whole, we probably got something closer to something between eight and nine million volumes. And they're all, are they all in this building? In this building, we probably got a couple million, but we have a, a shelving facility off campus that houses the equivalent of six million volumes. Then on campus, we have a total of, I think there are 16 different libraries. The one that we're in is the library that's the research facility for people in the humanities and the social sciences. But we have a music library, an art library, a geology library, a math library, a physics, you know, take your pick and, yeah, and we, yeah. can, we can deal with it. So it's, at Stanford, the research capacity in the library system is, is quite expensive and quite cool, actually. And do all 16 of those libraries have several hundred-year-old books? No, most of the rare books are in this building, okay. in this department. Some of the branches do have older materials, but if they're rare and valuable and extra special, they're in, in the Department of Special Collections. And how, who gets these books? How do, you, how, do you, how do they end up at Stanford? You don't just find them on Amazon, right? <laughs> at no. yard sales or something? <laughs> we would not find them on Amazon yeah. for First the most edition. part. But... Uh, there's a whole network of, of rare book dealers and contemporary art book dealers and book dealers who specialize in any number of different subject areas. And Stanford has, I think there are 32 bibliographers in the organization, and each of them specialize in a different subject area with particular language expertise, and they cover different parts of the world. And so... Uh, between the 32 of us, we pretty much got languages and the world covered, and then each of us is responsible for knowing what the academic program requirements are and needs are, and we anticipate needs before there's actually a need. And so we need to know what we call the book trade is. And so the book trade, you know, is the marketplace for the books themselves. And some of the books we we have a prescription for. So for example, we can have a standing order for any book published by any, by any university press in the world. And it comes to us automatically. Uh, we can have catalogs that are sent to us from different dealers that specialize in certain areas that we have an interest in, and then we'll select from those catalogs. We also have dealers who come and visit us in our offices and they show us what they've got available for sale. A lot of books come to us as gifts. Uh, we have a large collection of rare books that was a gift to Stanford from 
uh, the estate of Stephen Jay Gould, who was a very prominent science faculty member at Harvard University, and he passed away relatively young in his life, and his widow uh, made a gift of his rare book collection to Stanford. So the entire collection of Stephen Jay Gould is here. I'm sure that went over so well that at was Harvard. A, that was a, yeah, you know, Stanford is Stanford, Harvard is Harvard. <laughs> but the books come in a variety of ways. A faculty member could ask for it. A grad student could ask for a particular volume. If we don't have it uh, and we have the resources to acquire it, we will. And then from, again, reading your profile on, on the website there, you seem, again, to enjoy books. <laughs> um, is... As we go into this digital age and print seems to be not not the most, you know, I listen or, or read most of my books on my phone uh, nowadays. And for somebody like you that, that really enjoys, seems to enjoy books, does does that bother you or, or do you just see that as another, another medium of people getting that information? Well, to go back to the example of the Stephen Jay Gould collection, uh, when the collection was offered to Stanford, there was a, a precondition with the gift offer, and that precondition was that Stanford digitized the entire collection. And so we did. What that means is that you can come to Stanford and see the actual volume, the real thing, and if you can't come to Stanford, you can access it online for free anywhere in the world. And like that's the next best thing to having access to the book. And so, does it bother me? Absolutely not. Of course not. But do I want the real thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Do I want both? Yes. And can everybody do that? No. Can Stanford? In this case, we could, and we were happy to. And it allows us to have the collection, and it allows us to share it with anybody who needs it anywhere in the world. So that's the best of what, what else could you want? Right? Yeah, that's what I, I, that's what I it's love. It's very, very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's so cool going to university websites and some, you know, you're used to, like, having to pay for any kind of information and you click and this PDF pops up. And it's yeah, just like so, so the, the digital technology that's available to us now is in many ways a boon to special collections people because we can make our resources that are otherwise basically unique and available only if you come to our space. It makes them available to anybody who might need them without having to travel hundreds or thousands or whatever number of miles to do so. Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, well, let's get a little into what you, what, research, I guess, is, is, is that, because uh, um, we, we brought some of these books, and are these your, your books? These little catalogs that you have before you are exhibition catalogs that were printed and published by us to showcase some of the collections that we have. Uh-huh and the different kinds of materials that we collect. And it becomes a record of the exhibit itself, and we distribute them to anybody who wants them. And it's just another way of making information about collections available to people who might need them. And, and again, I mean, people that are listening are like, asshole, we can't, we can't, we don't know what you're looking at, but um, they're, they're well, again, these books, and they're mostly pictures, again, which uh, that's... Well, the, the catalog that you're looking at now is a catalog for an exhibition that we did on the photography of a fellow named Bob Fitch, who was uh, responsible for photographing 
a great deal of material from Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in the South. And after Dr. King was assassinated, he came back to California. He was originally from California, and he did a lot of documentary photography work on the UFW, the United Farm Worker Movement, and Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and, and all of the people involved in those civil rights movements. Bob's archive is about 200,000 images, and from that collection, we exhibited maybe 60, 60 or so, and then we published this catalog in part to celebrate the acquisition of the archive and to document the exhibit that we produced and to let people know that this resource now exists at Stanford. And in conjunction with the archive, we have digitized, I think there are probably 5,000 or so of the images that have been digitized and they're being put up in a different set of series by subject on the web so that the photographs are accessible to people anywhere who have access to a computer so that again, we can share this incredibly rich resource about this subject area or these subject areas with whomever might have an interest. So it's particularly cool. It's really quite amazing. Yeah, I, I, I thought they would be full of words, but full of pictures. <laughs> they're, uh, they're, uh, you know, they're very powerful images. Oh, yeah. uh, and they're images of contemporary history. You're talking, you know, images from the last 40 years or so. Yeah, and does this? Are you, have you used any of these pictures, Nacho, for for your research for the Bracero Legacy Project? Have you used any of those? Uh, actually, yes. Collection? There are two that he took. Two iconic uh, Buffett to, took two iconic photographs of. Uh, well, one gentleman is using the, the short handle hoe, cortito. Yeah. Uh, he's he's not a Bracero, but but it's obviously related to the Bracero program. And then there's a young young man that's holding the cortito. Um, but yeah, no, I, and, and there'll, there'll be sections, um, uh, in my dissertation that I, I'll probably use, uh, photographs from the, from Cesar Chavez's time in Salinas. So there's photographs in there of, uh, the 1970, uh, lettuce strike and, and, uh, you know, the strike that took place in Salinas that are very iconic historic images that people don't really have a clue about sometimes, but they were taken in, in Salinas, California, you know, very historic, uh, period. No, it's. I came across one. It was on some government website, and it was like a sheriff rounded up a posse. And there's yep. this guy standing there with shotguns, you know, at the edge of the field, and it was like, this is this isn't so. You know, when we see all these, you know, riots or unrest everywhere, and it was like, you got the lettuce riots that we've had we had here were were just as violent and and crazy as anywhere, but they seem to be forgotten. And I know locally why you know why why the the kind of the leaders would, would kind of want to forget that that part of our, our history, but um, well, and then can can we talk about a little bit about your Bracero Legacy project because I know it's a well, it's not just you, but but it's a pretty comprehensive thing, right? There's a documentary and a and a like a photography part of it and all that with with Daniel down in Tijuana, right? Yeah, so the Bracero Legacy Project is a multidisciplinary uh, research project on the Bracero <laughs> Legacy Project. Uh, it's a collaboration transnationally with a Mexicano, Mexicano artist from, from Tijuana, Daniel, uh, Daniel Ruanova. Uh, but it was sparked here 
working here at Stanford, working with uh, Roberto Trujillo and uh, his 33 years of, of research in special collections and archival uh, uh, collections. And so there's one particular collection that I did a lot of research on, and that was the, the Ernesto Galarza uh, collection yeah. that focused a lot on the, the Bracero program. Which includes the the photographs, the iconic photographs of people that we've been showcasing of former braceros uh, signing up for the bracero contract. Um, you know, now 60, 70 years ago. Uh, but so the bracero legacy project started really from digging through boxes, <laughs> digging through old photographs, and looking at uh, you know again very uh, historic and iconic images of of men on their journey to the U.S. Uh, and that's that's part of it. Well, and then uh, well, what I one thing that really interested me when I heard you speak at the Steinbeck Center, and I know Daniel is is really big on it, is that you want to portray this as a as almost a, a natural immigration. You know, we, we everyone is used to seeing the Ellis Island pictures. You know, of of the Italians or, or whoever you know came through there, and. And again, and most of the the feelings that you get when you see that is like, wow, look at those new Americans showing up. You know, they got on this boat and they left their country, and and they're you know they're here to make this country better. Um, but a lot of the times when we when you know we think of our own history, the Mex- Mexican American immigration history, it's all, a lot of like, oh, we got chased out of our own country and they don't like us here, and you know, and and. And you, you seem to be trying to push this whole, like, no, it was just another, it was another immigration. Sure, you know, people got taken advantage of, people got taken advantage of, but anywhere, you know. But really what you guys want to show that it was a lot of people about their wits that came willingly and proudly and, and knew that they were leaving their home country behind. And... Um, but yeah, so and is that really is that I, I again Daniel's really seems to be really pushing that a lot, you know. But is is that a part of of the goal here with this project, just to showcase that? Well, I mean, the the goal is first and foremost to 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 get the research out there, right? Like, I mean, as as Roberto said earlier, um, you know, you have to be very privileged in a sense to just have time to even come and visit the the archive here, right? It's open eight to five, right? Like. So our goal really was to get those photographs out there and let the, the public be the judge, right? And educate as well, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, myself as a, as a Mexicano immigrant and uh, someone who had a grandfather that was a, a former bracero, I found a very different narrative in, in the research and conducting oral history interviews. And, and so as I encountered the photographs, um, it was reminiscent of the stories I had heard from my grandfather, you know, stories of agency, of wanting to be a part of the program and wanting to uh, make progress in life, right? And and seeking to sign up. It wasn't something that like anyone forced them to do. It was a decision that was made as a family, right? Uh, with his my grandmother, uh, his wife, and but yeah, it, it it was frustrating for me as I read the literature that it was it was very um, you know this this kind of. Uh, um, What's the, Woe is I. What's that? Woe is I. Kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> but like victimizations, yeah. history, right? And uh, as I interviewed former Braceros, they were telling me a very different story, you know, that, that other scholars have captured as well. Uh, but for me, uh, these photographs show men on their journey just as uh, Italian Americans did, right? Or, or uh, you know, Asian Americans arriving at Ajo Island, right? And so I think, I think what Daniel and I, and, and Daniel's partial frustration too, is that we don't look south. 
right? We we point the finger on all these migrants yeah. and immigrants coming from from Mexico, but you know, Tijuana, Mexicali, Nogales, these are these are our Ellis Islands, right? And and I think that these photographs can serve that that same representation that, that it has to be. It's you know, people take great pride in their immigrant grandparents, right? Or it's like my uh, grandfather arrived at Ellis Island, uh, Leon Panetta. His uh, famously starts his book with his father's journey arriving at Ellis Island. Right, he's very proud of that. Right, like yeah. he always says, "How can an, the son of an immigrant become the director of the CIA and then eventually the Secretary of Department of Defense?" Right, and so I think for Mexicanos, for Mexican Americans, for immigrants coming from Mexico or any any other place, you know, there, there needs to be that sense of pride, and and so that's part of this uh, message uh, that I found in the research. And then this is, I guess, mostly for both of you. I'm kind of, I've been kind of curious about this myself. I don't know what you guys could, could add to this, but it seems to be the the one thing that's kind of different about Mexican immigration is that Mexico's right there. You know, Mexico's right there. It's an eight-hour drive away. Well, I mean, from here, but yeah, and you know, well, back in the day, I guess it, it probably took longer. Yeah. But does that make a difference with that, you know, with having the home, you know, when if the Chinese immigrants were like, China's, you know, crossing the ocean or the Germans or whatever, yeah. they were like, that's all gone, you know, this yeah. is the new home? Well, I mean, I'll let, I'll let Roberto talk about this, but I mean, one of, one of the, the unique things that, I, that I'm very proud to talk about, too, is that Stanford has become the... Um, a premier uh, location to conduct research on the Mexican and Mexican American experience, right? And so, you know, and part of that has to do with with special collections here and Roberto Trujillo, Roberto Trujillo's uh, career in collecting over the last thirty four years, collecting the the experience and the research of Mexican and Mexican Americans. But if no one goes after these collections and primary sources, right, then no one's going to write about it. And uh, but can you touch on that a little bit? Well, you know, the, your your comment about Mexico's right here is interesting. And my first thought was, well, Mexico's right here, but right here was also Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so we're talking about a people who have been in this part of the world for several hundred years. Some of them crossed the border, you know, yesterday or last week, and some of them have been here for several hundred years, and there are multiple generations. Yeah. And so, and then you had, even before the Mexican period, you had a territorial period and a Spanish period, and you have these, these mixtures of people, you know, the Spanish with the Indian, with the, with the African, and you have this mix that's been around for a long, long time. And so... When you think about that history, our history, and what documentation exists so that people can study it, so that we can study it, it becomes really powerful. And so we're not talking about you know, their history, we're talking about our history. And even if you're a bracero and you're dirt poor and you're here because of economic circumstances in your own little pueblito, you're here uh, and you're exploited. But even in spite of that economic need and in spite of the exploitation, you bring with you a history, a literature, a food, music, art. You bring with you culture. And that cultural record is what and where. Yeah. And so I have felt personally responsible in a way 
to make sure that that record is in part at Stanford because of where Stanford is yeah. geographically and because of what Stanford is within the world of higher education. And so it's important for us to be here. You know, and by when I say us, I mean the history, the literature, the culture, the photographs, the, the oral histories, the, you know, the filmmaker archives, the politicians' archives, the civil rights organizations' records, uh, records of comedians, records of people in theater, uh, records of the Bracero, their letters. They wrote. We have letters. We have photographs. We have oral histories. Some of the oral histories were produced last week. Nacho has been involved with oral history for the past two or three years, and his records. Oral history is creating a new record. And so in doing so, it's important because you're creating a historical record that's going to be there forever. And whether it's on videotape or on audio tape or it's just transcribed, you're creating evidence of something. And that something is culture. And I don't care how poor you are or how educated or uneducated you might be, you have got something that you brought with you and you're somehow sharing it. And if you look at the, the descendants of the Braceros and where they are, you have professors, you have Supreme Court justices for the state of California. Yeah. You have lawyers. You have filmmakers. You have you guys. You have, you know, take your pick. And we're all descendants of these guys and these women. And we're doing fine. But we come from, you know, these very humble roots. Uh, and I think that's important. It's really important. And it's important for that kind of record to be at a place like Stanford. And do you, when... I've I've I'm always curious of this question because again being from Salinas a town 75 percent Mexican and it have 160 thousand people so um, so many that there's that big Mexican pride thing you know and I've I've always had a, a problem with or trouble figuring out what what is Mexico what what Mexico what era are you proud of because you know a lot of people. They like to use Aztec imagery, but Aztecs were just one tribe, you know, and Mexico's a big, big area when you look at it. Um, or when it was a Spanish colony, to me, it was like, those weren't good times for Native Mexicans, you know? Or after the, the revolution, which was still not good times for Native Mexicans, you know? It pretty, um, so when does the, the, the modern history of Mexico start? Goodness. It's a loaded question. You know, I, I basically would have to, you know, consult other historical texts to answer that question. But, but I think for me as a curator, uh, what's more important is that I probably don't really care. I think that the cultural record for people who have been living in this part of the world is what I'm more concerned with. And whether you call us Hispanos or Mexicanos or Nuevo Mexicanos or Tejanos or Californianos or Latinos yeah. or Hispanos, you know, I really don't care uh, because all of those labels and all of those histories for me come together in what we call the library. 
and then it's for scholars and students to interpret that record and the interpretations are going to be different depending on what your own particular background is and what your own biases are and where you went to school but I basically don't really care uh, and so I consider it fair game for me to collect anything from Mexico from any of the indigenous groups down there yeah. or anybody who calls themselves a Mexicano and speaks Spanish but what if they don't speak Spanish what do they speak one of the indigenous languages are they less of a Mexican because of that yeah I don't think so not for a curator who's collecting the way we try to collect and do I care if you crossed the border last week or if your family has been here for six generations not really I, I just don't care and do I care if you come from Texas or Arizona or California or New Mexico or Colorado or anywhere else in the greater Southwest? Not really. Uh, and so I consider it, you know, fair game to, to go after whatever we need to support teaching and research. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes we have a common language. Sometimes that language is English. Sometimes it's Spanish. I don't speak any indigenous languages from Mexico. I would love to, but I don't. Yeah. Uh, but would I not collect them because I can't speak that language? No, absolutely not. And I, I mean, I think you know, there's there's a new wave of historians that are coming out, and, a, and a, really a new history uh, that's more transnational. Uh, but uh, you know, historians are now trained to think um, of what some have called the subaltern. But the start from the bottom, you know, class-wise, right? Social class, and so I mean, growing up, you you know the the famous figures, right? Everyone wants to write about the presidents, you know, the the elite, right? But there are new histories that are now coming out. I think over really the last forty years, you know, with, with the new social historians, but even younger historians that are now writing about the common person, right? Like we don't have to focus on the governors and the presidents. We we could focus on that laborer who made that migration, you know, that that. That story is very important, right? And uh, and so yeah, that's the and that's the history of the Bracero <laughs> themselves. It's not you know necessarily the leaders who came, but the the worker. What's their story? What's their history? Do we have copies of their birth certificates or their passports or their correspondence with their families or their photographs or their diaries or whatever it is they kept that is a cultural record? You know. Is that legit for, for research? And I would argue that, yes, it is. And historically, that wasn't always the case, right? So there's a group of historians that, you know, I mean, from Roberto's generation and call themselves Chicano historians, who really paved the way for younger historians like, you know, myself that are, that are still in, 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 in the training stages. But it's made it easier for us to really showcase the histories of our immigrant, you know, uh, lives and also parents or grandparents, right? That those histories are, are super important. And historians will always ask you, well, if you're going to write the story of the Bracero, what, where's your archive? You know, what documents, right? What archive did they leave? And so we're lucky that there's been a, you know, about a 40-year period of collecting in the Mexican, Mexican-American experience of, of migrants here in the U.S. Uh, and without that, we wouldn't be able to tell these stories. You know, we wouldn't have these, these uh, photographs or documentation to show evidence that these individuals, you know, uh, wrote. They, they cried. They were happy also, right? It wasn't all yeah, work like my yeah. grandfather talks about. It's like, well, where's your evidence? Well, <laughs> um, and then, of course, there's oral history, which is important. But um, 
I mean, yeah, that it's it's very important that we've had support for a very long time. You think about what the what the aesthetic is in a bracero's home or room. What do they hang on the wall? You know, do they hang religious iconography, or do they hang santos, or do they hang photographs of their family? Uh, how is their kitchen? What's the aesthetic of the kitchen? You know, yeah. Is there an aesthetic? Or is it just a pile of stuff? You know, I, I would argue that there's an aesthetic. No matter how poor you are, there's still something that you deal with in an aesthetic way that makes your most humble little abode yours and its home. And I think that's important. It doesn't have to be, you know, a Rembrandt hanging on your wall. It could be, you know, whatever. No, that, that's, and I don't mean to take it in this direction, but it, I mean, if you think about prisons, you know, prisoners themselves have the, you know, when, when well, they you decorate want, their cells. Yeah. But also what they, what they wrote, right, uh, to their families, that, that, that's important. Yeah. Right, for, for, and, and in fact, we have one of the most famous, uh, well, poets, uh, Mexican-American poets who spent time in prison. and, and of course. The, the correspond- most famous poet. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. That was you, actually. But, God but, damn it. Uh, Can we say it? Well, one of the most famous is probably right now is, is uh, Juan Felipe right? Herrera, uh, who's the, the uh, U.S. Lord, uh, poet laureate. Oh, okay. I got but, to ask, why is he in prison? Well, no, no, not Juan Felipe. Not oh, Juan Felipe, sorry. but, but is it Carlos. Carlos no, there were, there were three other poets who, who, have called them, who have called themselves the Pinto Poets. And one was Raul Salinas from Texas. The other was Jimmy Santiago Baca from New Mexico, and the other was Ricardo Sanchez, who was also from Texas. But all three of their literary archives are at Stanford. All three of them got their first published work published while they were in prison. And all of a sudden, they became literate, you know? They became literate in prison. Yeah. And they became published poets, and they have books, not just poetry. And they're studied. There are dissertations on them. There are... University Press issued books on their work. Well, what if nobody collected their archives? Yeah. What if nobody studied them? You know? And what is their aesthetic? What is their language? What, you know, what do they write in? Do they write in Spanish only, or do they write in English only, or do they use some hybrid mix of Spanglish? You know, what do they do? What kind of language do they, do they, do they use? Do they have cabronazos in their poetry? Yes, they do. Is that important? Yes, it is. And it's not necessarily for me to interpret or critique it, but it's my job as a curator to make it available for other students. And I don't care, again, if it's a person working on a 10-page paper who's a freshman or if it's Ignacio who's doing his dissertation. I could care less. It's there for them to look at, for new generations to interpret and critique. And you're going to have second and third critical readings of the same people's work. We had, uh, in the mid-1980s at Stanford, three dissertations being written on the poet Ricardo Sanchez, and they had access to the same archive. But you've got three very different dissertations, and then three different university press-issued books that deal with with his poetry. That's cool, I think. (laughs) That's cool. And... And could it be that, like, are, is this Mexican historians, is this kind of a, a new thing? Mm. Could this whole, like, oh, okay, Italians look proudly upon their immigration because 
Well, their immigration was in the early, you know, 20th century or something. So they've had time for multiple generations of historians to be telling that story. Is it is it pretty kind of like our turn now? You know, is it, I don't mean to to kind of be possessive about it, but like, is it just a kind of a natural progression? Well, I mean, for me, it it has to do with a longer history. You know, if you study the history, like even the civil rights history, right? Um, you you have a very ugly history in the U.S. and and even in California, you have you have a history of uh, a colonial power taking over, right, the territory. And so you ha- you have that longer history, but then you also have a newer wave of, of of migrants, immigrants who eventually, because of the civil rights movement and activism that that took place, you you're going to have greater access to education and schooling. And so for me, the Chicano movement, what you were part of and what other historians and scholars, like, like a historian who, who, who was here at one point who was part of also that movement, they <clears throat> transformed their, their university departments where they were studying and they demanded more Mexican and Mexican-American history and curriculums and you know, being able to write a dissertation on the Mexican-Mexican-American experience. I mean, they were told, you're crazy, like, what, what history is that, right? And so there was a, a progression of activism that took place that was very, very important. And then, you know, papers came out. They were published, books or dissertations that turned into books. And so it's a, it's a very long history of scholarly activism that took place that has now, you know, they now have students. Roberto has had, you know, many advisees that have come through here that are now, you know, uh, professors at Yale, at here, at, uh, or, you know, di- different institutions that are now not fighting that same fight, right? Like now it's, it's okay, you're going to write a Chicano history, you're going to write a Mexican, Mexican-American history. It's okay, you're not having to, like, struggle to, <coughs> excuse me, to, um, to get it approved. It's just, it's part of the, the, uh, the institution now. I mean, you could you could talk better about that, that longer history. But you have you know you have some of the the more senior scholars, most of them whom have passed away. But you had you know George Sanchez from Texas and from New Mexico who was writing in you know the 40s and the 50s. And you have Américo Paderes from the University of Texas. You have Luis Leal from from the University of of, uh, of Illinois. You have uh, Julian Zamora. These these guys were all. You know, individuals who were the forefathers, if you will, of the Chicano movement in terms of scholarship, and their students became, you know, the scholars of the Chicano movement per se, and that basically started in the late 1960s, uh, in large part within the University of California, especially UCLA and then Santa Barbara, but then you had University of New Mexico, University of Texas. Uh, and then, you know, 20 years later, you've got, you know, other institutions involved and in, in, in a new wave of scholars. And I don't know how many Chicano PhDs there are out there now in, in fields all over the place. And, and you have, you know, Chicano scholars who are of Mexican heritage who are doing scholarship that have nothing to do with the Chicano history per se. Yeah. They could be engineers, they could be doctors, they could be whatever. But that legacy of, of higher education uh, is largely due to these early Chicano Mexican scholars who broke ground and, and made room within the academy for the rest of us. And that's not been going on for a long time. You're talking maybe 50 years? Right. That's not a long time. Uh, yeah, not, not at all. Um, and 
it's a, uh, I don't know, again, this is, I, I, one of my interests is city planning. I, I enjoy, cities are the most, so interesting <laughs> to me, you know, they're, they're human beehives. And it's like, how do we put them together? How do they become what they are? You know, how did New yeah. York just become this, from this little settlement to the, one of the biggest cities in the world? Um, and one thing I, I noticed that there was great city planning in, in you know Mesoamerica region. You know the, the the planning of the city, where the temples and and where the things would be. It wasn't just you know randomly laid out. It, it was just as thought out as as the Europeans. And um, but here in this country, we still see old old world or like Mediterranean uh, area as the old like class and smartness you know I mean just walking into this this library here is big pillars you know yeah. pillars are, are <laughs> kind of the epitome of fanciness in this yeah. country and then and they're they're you know tied to Rome and all that but or people dream of, of taking a trip to, to to Giza to see the the pyramid you know and and it's like we Mexico is there yeah Pyramids just as big, you know, you know, just as much technology, just just as as much knowledge is there, but people just see Mexico as like let's go to Cabo and get drunk, you know, and it's like and and can we change that? Can that narrative be changed through telling this history or to, to, from bringing out this this stuff? Like, hey, you. You know, it's just as stately, just as prideful, just as as beautiful as a Mexican pyramid as a, is as a Roman column. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it, I think it's happening. I, I think that I mean that is part of one of the frustrations that that we've dealt with in, in academia. Though it's like it almost has to be done through different mediums, you know. And, and that's like with the Bracero Legacy Project. It's like okay, well, we could we could write a paper, but we're writing a paper like you know to our own. A group of historians, or you write a book, and you know people aren't like as you said. You know, it's all it's all digital, right? It, I mean, it's, sometimes you know you, maybe you print five hundred, a thousand, two thousand books, but that there needs to be other mediums to get get across that, right? And and I think like what you've seen too, like take take someone for example like uh, Javier Plasencia, who you met and interviewed, right? Who's a, yeah. who's a chef, right? Historically, people think of Mexican food as you know taco beans and, and rice and yeah. here you have a chef that's transforming you know the image of Mexican food right and, and and at the same time doing it through through history through archival research by the way he came here right to conduct research for for his restaurant um, and and you have someone like uh, uh, Daniel you know that's doing it through through his art you know he always says that like you know, people still think of the the Mexicano with the sombrero, you know, and yeah. and, and that that image, right? And he so, hates that. <laughs> <laughs> he <gets> so yeah, <laughs> and uh, but I mean, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, you know, there's people majoring in in and in, in studying Mexican history that that are not Mexican, Mexican American. I mean, it's kind of a generalization that, that we always make, but um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's happening. It, it has been occurring. There's a longer progression. It's not something that that's new. Um, but it, it, yeah, you, you want to add to that? Well, you know, the, if you look at the different Latin American collections around the world and you think about what those collections have and what they represent and you realize how large they are, uh, both within Latin American countries and in this country, the libraries that collect Latin Americana, it's, it's quite incredible. And you're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of volumes. 
You're not talking about a couple hundred books. You're talking about thousands of volumes that deal with the history, the literature, the culture of of Latin America, and certainly Mexico is a is a big part of that. But the Bancroft Library across the bay here, Stanford's collection, the University of Texas, the University of California at Los Angeles, University of New Mexico, all of those libraries and many others have large collections within their libraries that document Mexico. And, and you're talking about you know thousands of books and hundreds of authors and books that are you know decades old and sometimes hundreds of years old. I mean, people were printing in Mexico before they were printing in the United States. And so that history and those books are somewhere. And so for people to assume that there is no history because the history that they do know is this little smidgen of something is, is absurd. Uh, and so, but the library's responsibility is to collect that historical record, that cultural record. And, and we largely are. Uh, the trick is, how do we have students who come to the university and they exploit that record and interpret it and critique it and then produce new scholarship? And I, I was just, um, is that thing that you hear when the Spanish came over and they saw all these books and stuff that they were like, ah, heretics, this, is, this goes against God, and they got rid of a lot of stuff? Is that true? They did burn a lot of codices that were part of Mexico native culture. Uh, there are some of the codices that have survived. Uh, most of the important ones are outside of Mexico. They're in the United States and, and, in, and, in, the U and in Europe. But there are facsimiles of those and there are now digital copies of those. So those, those texts, if you will, are, are available. But yes, they did a wholesale destruction of a culture. Yeah. When you're working on the, the Webla project, you might want to well, touch on there's, that. Well, you know, one of the oldest, perhaps the oldest public library in the Americas is in Puebla, Mexico. It's called the Biblioteca Palafoxiana. And it's a collection of some 42,000 or so rare books. Uh, a lot of them deal with Mexico. It's a collection that's comparable to what you would see in this room. It's yeah. actually quite a bit larger. Yeah. It's absolutely a stunning you know, collection. And it was given to the city of Puebla so that it would be a public library, which is interesting. You know, It's a public library owned by the city oh, of wow. Puebla. It's available for anybody who wants to use it. You just have to know that it's there and how to get access to it. But it's an incredible collection. Absolutely incredible. And what kind of paper did they print? <laughs> well, they used, you know, rag paper. They used vellum, which is basically an animal skin. Uh, and so, uh, but interestingly, those books have survived, and they're probably better than the books that you can buy now. Yeah. The books you buy now are all produced with a very cheap paper on acid stuff, and the ink is cheap, and they're going to last a few, you know, they're not going to last four or five hundred years. Yeah. And are you one of those? I freak out when people just open books, like just tear them open. It's like, ah, oh, the binding, man. It's never yeah. going to sit flat. Are yeah. you one of those that's like that? Or do you freak out when people say library? 
Library as opposed to library. Yeah. I don't freak out. When when people come to to our special collections reading room and we hand over a rare book for them to use, uh, we tell them how to open it and we'll give them a book cradle so that they'll put the book on a cradle so that it's open properly and it's not going to you know break or mess up the spine. And if they have dirty hands, we'll ask them to wash their hands. <laughs> I remember going to, a, going to a class, and the first thing the professor said was, how many of you just had lunch? And everybody raised their hand, and he said, how many of you washed your hands before you came into this room? Nobody raised their hand. He said, the first thing you do is go back to the bathroom, wash your hands. <laughs> then you can come and you can touch the books. So if you take care of things, and somebody took care of these books for hundreds of years That's because they're amazing. still here. And you can touch them. You can smell them. You can you know, look at them. Uh, just take care of them. That's amazing to me because everyone seems to have a crack on their phone nowadays. And it's like, <laughs> man, this book's 400 years old. How did it survive? Are we just more careless nowadays? But they, you know, they, they can survive. And they're here to be used. They're not here to decorate the room. They're here because <laughs> people need to read them and study them and critique them yet again. Right. right. Critique them yet again from your own perspective, your own experience. That, that that that's been the I mean I mean you know the credit of this university and this department is that they've allowed us to to share the the Ernesto Galarza photographs that that I've I've showed and and you know are now on Facebook and on the internet so that thousands more can can see them and I mean that's that's one of the things that I'm most proud of that they've never been like super territorial like oh you you can't share that you know and then so. The university, the department has always been very welcoming to to expose the uh, whether it's the books or the manuscript collections and to get the research out there, but to also to to teach and also like I always say at the end of my talks is to to empower a generation that really needs this history, right? They need some kind of hook or an anchor to a longer history, uh, and that gives a lot of pride to a younger population and, and it empowers them, right? No, yeah, I agree because that's what sometimes frustrates me. It, again, being in Salinas, where people, especially if you're second generation being from Salinas, you you think this is how the way the world is, yeah. you know, because because the three square miles around me are like this, everywhere is like that. You're like, dude, <laughs> you're 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 doing such a disservice to your own history. Not not only in this country as an American, but from where you might come from, not in Mexico or wherever it might be. Yeah. Like, you, you're you not just this, this thing floating in space. You know, you do have a, a history that grounds you to this to this place. And if you don't know it, yeah, you'll right. you'll just go through life like nothing matters. Right. You know, and it's like, no. No, and, and it's important, you know, as you drive down the Salinas Valley, I've said this many times, but... You know, you don't you don't have the buildings that you know the New Yorkers or the Italians who built you know New York City or the different ethnic groups who did. You know, you you have a lot of fields, but if you get close to those workers, right? They're sweating and they're doing very important work. And you know, like my my research showed that in 1940, before Bracetos arrived, uh, total ag in Monterey County was something like 15 million dollars. Right? The the all of their crops that's what it was worth. By the end of the Bracero program, it was worth a $150 million industry. You've seen what the Act Commissioner released recently. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And so, you know, not everyone works in ag, but for the, for the young people, you know, whose parents or, or the people who do or are part of ag, it's important for them to know that the labor that's being done in that region is contributing to larger scale, the larger economic, yeah. uh, you know, vitality of the region. And 
that's empowering, I think. <laughs> no, it is. And th- those pictures, especially again, there's one that I just, I just won't ever forget. Uh, yeah. One of the pictures that you that you showed uh, during during your talk there at at Steinbeck Center, it, it was a, a couple. It was a guy on a train, and you, you yeah. can tell he's about to come up north, and then he's like, you know, giving saying goodbye to his girl there, and they're just looking at each other like so lovingly, you know, and it was. I, I honestly was I didn't have anything to say it, it, it just that that picture stopped me in its tracks I never realized like that's when it really hit me that oh it was just it, some people willingly left and we're like dude like I'm gonna go work and I'm gonna come get you you yeah. know like you could just that, that one picture told so many stories and it literally stopped me in my tracks and it was like oh man like yeah. these, you know are people you know they weren't brought in in, in chains you know and and forced to to work in these fields, a lot of it was, again, just just people, you know, just young people. Like, there's opportunity out there. I'm gonna make something. You, you know, I'm smart. I believe in myself. I'm gonna do something. And I got all that just from that one picture. Yeah. And again, I'm used to seeing the field workers hunched over, right. you know, or or the, again the posse at the edge of the of the field with shotguns, making sure the union doesn't show up, you know. But I had really never seen kind of just just day to day life, you know, just just a loving couple like that. And again, it it, it was it's a great picture, first of all, you know. But it, it really just stopped me as in like, wow, I I myself who who um you know tend to like to read or do stuff. I I didn't even realize this, you know. And and that's why I'm again even more grateful. You know how you say that Stanford is willing to show this because. It, if it impacted me, I know it'll impact other people to see these pictures. Or the one where there's a guy sitting there and they got the numbers on. And I, I think I asked you, I was like, what do these guys do? And you're like, dude, they're fucking, they're getting, they're waiting for a job. Like, they're, they're, this is the, the hiring agency. And I was like, oh shit, like in my head, it's just like, one of these guys is guilty, you know? Well, there, there's no denying that there was hardship. You know, there's hardship, yeah. I think, in any, any migration story. And, and there's no denying that there was exploitation that took place. And hardship in the labor is difficult, hard work, hard labor. But, you know, as Roberto talks a lot about, I mean, these workers also have normal lives, right? They, they, they have loved ones, you know, they have family members that they want to contribute to, you know, and they, they, they fall in love here. What's that? We face the mic. Oh, face the mic? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and, and so, you know, they also laughed and they told stories, right? And so through my research, obviously not just the photographs in the Galarza collection, but in conducting interviews, you know, there's a whole uh, other narrative that needs to be told. And that's what some of the braceros that I interview that that also want to share. And, you know, their children too, a second generation, a third generation of, you know, their grandkids that are transforming the political landscape of that region. You know that became the elected leaders, right? Someone like Supervisor Simon Salinas or Anaventura Fares in in, uh, in Watsonville became the first Latina mayor, who's the daughter of a former bracero, right? And and so, it, yeah, I mean, you know, they were living life. They were they were moving up the ladder. They were moving perhaps out of ag, but you wouldn't have these stories unless we conduct that research, right? Or unless we have archival material yeah. to prove it. And so, that's very important. And I always go back to the empowerment part, but. You know, there's there's new younger scholars that are coming out that that are telling that story. You know, um, there there's a, a a number of different um, younger scholars that are now writing in, in that that narrative. And then, 
to kind of switch gears a bit, uh, Dr. Trujillo, did you, how long have you been at Stanford, or how did you end up here? Well, in September, I will have been here 34 years. Oh. So I've been here a, a little while. Next May, I'll be 30. <laughs> so I've been here longer than you've been around. Uh, but I came to Stanford uh, in 1982 uh, because Stanford recruited me because they had an interest in creating a program within the libraries to collect what I call the civil rights history of the Mexican in the United States. And what does that mean? It means a lot of things. And it uh, allowed me to become more knowledgeable about the history, the culture, the literature, the language, uh, the organizations, individuals. And I collect materials from all over the country that are documents that pertain to the history of Mexicans in the United States. Uh, Stanford had created a program in Chicano Studies in 1980, I believe, and faculty members who were teaching and graduate students in particular who were here uh, complained about the library, this library, not having enough materials for them to do their work. And so I was commissioned, I was at the time working at the University of California in Santa Barbara, and I was commissioned by Stanford to evaluate Stanford's library holdings as it pertained to Mexicans in the U.S. And so I came up here and spent a couple of weeks and compared Stanford holdings against what I had at Santa Barbara, what UCLA had, what Berkeley had, what the Library of Congress had. Other universities had holdings on the history of Mexicans, and I compared what Stanford had to what these other places had. And then I had a little graph that showed that in a graphic way to faculty and library administrators. And they didn't have what I considered enough to support doctoral level work. And so I said, well, you have doctoral students, but your library can't support what they're trying to do. And so that's a problem. Yeah. And so they said, well, can we fix it? And I said, of course you can. All you have to do is get these books and get these journals and collect these kinds of things. And then the big question was, well, what is it going to cost? And so we gave them that information as well. So in the end, it wasn't a particularly big deal in terms of economics to fix the problem. It was a matter of, it was, it was will, it was willpower. You know, do you want to in fact fix this so that your graduate students can do their work at Stanford? And they decided yes. And then they ended up offering me the job and I took it. So, now so it's you, kind of, you, can't, you know, and yeah. I've been here for 34 years. Yeah. But, you, but I came to, to do that, and in, since then I've done a lot of other things as well, but the purpose of my coming to Stanford was to build collections that Stanford up until then had not invested in or had not had a particular will to collect. And now they did, and in part because they now had a new need that was demonstrable. You had graduate students and you had faculty who were teaching and doing research, 
and you couldn't support their work. Well, that's what you're supposed to do, so fix it. And so they did. We did. Uh, now you can't, uh, you can't write about the Mexican-Mexican-American experience in the, during the 20th century, at least, without like, paying a visit here. I mean, you can't write a dissertation or a book. The Acarva Color, you know, we have, to, we, have the, we have the historical record of the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund. We have the records of the National Council of La Raza. We have the California Rural Legal Assistance records. We have the records of Ernesto Galarza, of Herman Gallegos. We have probably 140, 150 distinct collections that pertain to the Mexican experience in the United States and its organizations, its individuals. And most of these people or individuals have had a national impact on that history, on that record. And so because of that, and because of the volume of those collections, it makes Stanford a pit stop for anybody doing any kind of serious research on us. Yeah, yeah. Which is cool. There's I mean, a know. new book that just came out. It's not, uh, and it's not just Stanford who's doing it, but we're simply, you know, on the leading edge of things, certainly. But a lot of other universities are collecting as well. We just do it more, comp more not comprehensively, but more extensively, I guess is a better word. Those other universities are missing you. <laughs> well, there's, there's others hmm. like... Common denominator there. <laughs> there's, there's, other, there's other people like me. I mean, you know, you have a lot of important collections in Arizona, a lot of important collections in New Mexico and Texas, and, you know, UCLA has a lot of materials. Berkeley does, Santa Barbara does, San Diego does. Um, and collectively, you know, we have a lot of history. In, in, in our in our hands now, but it's been collected in the last thirty years. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'll do credit to you. It, it hasn't been easy either. I mean, it, it has been a lot of advocacy on behalf of, of these individuals, but also like I've I've watched you know from the sidelines uh, the work that Roberto has done and others, you know, to make sure that the acquisitions get approved. You know, I mean, like, why are you going to go get all these old boxes? You know, from someone's garage and uh, what? What's, what's the significance? Why was this person important, you know, to the Mexican and Mexican American uh, story, right? And so it, it hasn't been easy. It's it's been a lot of, I would call it scholarly activism, but also advocacy to not demand, but to to always have to lobby on behalf of the the Mexican Mexican American experience. And so you know. That's part of the reason why now you have a new book that just came out on Salinas, you know, a book written by a former student here, Lori Flores, who uh, produced the book, uh, I think it's called uh, Grounds for Dreaming. But, you know, that would have never happened if, if Roberto wouldn't have been here or this department, you know, wouldn't have allowed, you know, to collect in this region. We have a class coming in here, so we need to... We're, we're at an hour, five minutes yeah. anyway. All right. So, yeah. So, Any last... Oops. No, I, no, I'm, I'm, no. I mean, thank you guys for doing this. Thank you for inviting this fun, us. This is fun to talk about. Thank you for making the trip, guys. I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of being from Salinas. So when I met you guys, I was like, I would love to have you guys here. And uh, so anything that I could ever do. And but thank you for for making the trip. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if I was more excited to be able to interview you two or just to be around all this history I'm, so, I'm such a nerd when it comes to it and um, yeah when it was like Stanford and like yeah I'm I'm excited so yeah and 
And yeah, we only had an hour here. We'll definitely, if you guys have ever have time again or want to talk about anything else, we're yeah, more than willing to make the trip up. Oh well, no, well, you have a connection here now, and and uh, you know you'll have Rolando also to talk about too. So there'll be future. But yeah, anyway, so <laughs> thanks. Thank again. you. Yeah, thank you. Such thank, a nerd. Thank me. Such thank a me. nerd. See, did you hear them? Thank me. Yeah, yeah, totally. They were, they of course. Thinking me. Thinking ah. about you? Yeah, they they were definitely. Selena, about baby. You. Thinking of you. <laughs> hey, hey, okay, go ahead. What is it? I don't know. I was thinking anything dreams. for Salinas, but whatever. Speaking of that, man, well, we got to hit up Ruben Gonzalez. Um, he was not that guy, uh, but we went to go see uh, a one man play, and it was a guy named Ruben Gonzalez. He's an actor. All oh, right, he was right, one right. Of anything the, for Salinas. Yeah, no, well, he was one of the Dinos, remember? No. Yeah, he was one of the, the Dinos <laughs> in Selena. What are Dinos? Um, but he wants to be on the show as well. The, it was Selena y los Dinos, bro. Oh, I thought he was one of the guys from the car. Yeah, I knew that. Well, I never course. watched the movie and I didn't it's grow up Selena. with that. You need I grew to up with Selena. Me gusta. Na, 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 na. <laughs> I hella fucked that up. That's A mi me gusta estar de pelo suelto. There it is. Anyways. But Selena was Mexican-American, which changed a lot. Well, in the movie, she was Puerto Rican, but whatever. We'll take the it. The actress was... Bro, yeah. come on. Come on. Come on. Wait. She so did it, she was bro. from Texas, right? Corpus Christi, baby. No, I'm talking about Selena. Yeah. She was from Texas. Yeah, Corpus Christi. What does that mean? That's the town she's from. Oh. It's the only Don't just say I random know. shit and then just expect not me to random. know. It's random to me. I just said I didn't grow up with Selena. Dude, they were talking about that show on Primer Impacto 10 years later. I don't watch that either. We're like talking it, about Univision. Ian Edwards brought up. You know how Ian Edwards has that joke of like you take two mixed race people and they make the the prettiest babies. Mm-hmm. And he I was actually like, "You know about that?" He's like, "You mean you mean your mom's the the lady that killed Selena <laughs> and uh, and somebody else, you know?" But like, because that lady was, was a fucking troll. I don't know if you remember. He was short and fat. And I remember ugly. her from the movie. But it was like, just so funny. The, the movie that him, you know, as a. Well, he's, I must. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's on parole. Oh, she's she? out. She's on the out. Oh, really? So, um, like, how's she not dead yet? All kinds of Mexicans would be like, "You killed Selena." We have anything for Selena. See, they're saying it right because they're trying to do it right. No, that's what I was getting at. You know, for they're saying it right. Anyways, but yeah, I hope uh, everybody enjoyed that interview. We really, we, de- I had, I, 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 again, I was just in awe. Yeah, I thought it was in a movie set. It I'm felt sure like a fucking tell. movie set. No. Felt like a movie set. Yeah, it did. No. All the buildings and shit. You were all into it. Yeah, I'll give you that. I, I thought I was in how high. I was like so happy. <laughs> I wish I wish I had a blunt. I, we just didn't I make it to so high. Financial aid. <laughs> yeah. That's oh, the, the one Deuster scene I remember building? from the movie. You know, fuck. Well, such an asshole. Well, Bart, Bart, you got skills. It's rowing, Jimmy Jam. But yeah, um, we will be back. Um, yeah, definitely. We we met a guy out there. What was it? it? Was Orlando? Right? Oh, you said it right. I think you said it right. Yeah, I. I it yeah. wasn't Armando. <laughs> it was definitely. You kept calling him Armando. Why? Call but yeah, he he was a bio um, bioengineering major. Yeah, Rolando. Oh, there. You Rolando go. Cruz Perez, and he was. Um, Trying to get his PhD, right? He was trying to get. Yeah, he's he's a PhD candidate at Stanford in yeah. bioengineering. He's from Salinas, went to Hartnell, then went to CSUMB. Was the was in gangs when he was younger. I mean, the dude had 
Yeah, I saw forearm the tats, tattoos. But I don't know that. I thought he was just trying to be cool. <laughs> no, that's what, I, I don't know. You know, again, we we met uh, him that time. So uh, we'll I mean, we'll interview him and we'll talk to him. And uh, y'all, we're y'all gonna get, get to go to, to a lab. Story. All he said, you want to go to the lab? Uh, yes, I fucking want to. What that means? I want to touch if a man. If something tracks. breaks out, like, are we gonna have a doom experience? Get that, Can I get I the care. super shotgun? <laughs> if if it's gonna happen, I want to be the motherfucker that creates it. You know, nah, I don't want somebody. You don't want to be the bad guy because then the like the guy? demons possess you and then you're fucked. Uh, you're I just gonna end up dying. You I'm know, you want to be the super badass, well, not anyway. the scientist. Not well. Ultimately, maybe I want to be the guy that dropped the vial <laughs> that fucked it all up. Because well, if, if uh, I don't, if somebody else does it, I'm be like, you fucking idiot. If it was me, it was like, hey, it was a mistake, God. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Okay, okay. That was sweaty. King guy. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man. Zombie apocalypse as, starts. I want to start it. As guests, just don't touch nothing. Just, hey, here's lunch. Touch uh, your lunch. They were hella cool about the touching 500-year-old books, yeah. so I'm touching fucking bacteria. we hadn't even bacteria. washed our hands. <laughs> I don't know what you do with your hands, but mine were clean enough. I mean, that silence I says that a day. lot. Nah, I just, whatever. Damn, Cujo. <laughs> your hands are like a Petri dish. I'm going to have them stick your hand under a microscope in the biomedical lab. Be like, yo, you could name some diseases off of this hand. Mm-hmm. There's some fresh ones there. And most of them relate to my dick. No, I don't know. Anyways. Stop touching it so much. <laughs> Get other people to do it for you. It's natural selection. But anyway, Stephanie, I thank you for, for being here. And, uh, and again, you know, if... Hopefully, it seems like from now on, if you want to be on the show, that's who you will be dealing with. And again, at Selena's Podcast, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Snapchat. I, I'm i figuring that out way better, dude. I'm hella good at it now. Well, not that good. I'm decent enough. Do a Snapchat right here while we close. We'll, yeah, we'll finish it up with the snap. Um, my phone's going to get all hot. And sexy. But, um, no, well, yeah, if I do a selfie one, it will. Took you a while. Took you guys a while. Come so on, the modest. F- uh, <laughs> like I just got it. That's stupid. Anyway, <laughs> uh, is that it right there? Anyway, so uh, are we good to go? Is that the plan? Yeah, hell yeah. Hey Snapchat. Hey podcast. Y'all have a good one. I'm gonna enjoy my beer. That was a terrible. One. <laughs>